You follow in your copies of uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8. I'm going to be in, begin reading at verse 11. Deuteronomy 8, 11. We'll read to the end of the chapter. <clears throat> Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. That he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God. And go after other gods and serve them and worship them. I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish. Because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. The grass withers. And the flower fades. But the word of our God, it endures forever. I don't know how much you know about the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, it has got to be one of my top five all-time favorite books in the Bible. The word Deuteronomy, which is a Greek word, by the way. It's not a Hebrew word. It's a Greek word. The word Deuteronomy means second law, which is not to suggest that there are two of them. There are not two of them. There's only one of them. But it does get repeated. You might know that the law, the Ten Commandments, first appeared in Exodus chapter 20. And then the law gets repeated in Deuteronomy 5. So Deuteronomy is the second law, or at least the repetition, the second time that you hear the law. So the book of Deuteronomy is a book where the law gets mentioned for the second time. Actually, the whole book is a, is a collection of second Times, uh, As you may know, uh, Moses is coming to the end of his, his life. 
And so in this last book that he writes, and you know, Moses wrote the first five. It's called the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those are all Mosaic authorship. In this last book that he writes, Deuteronomy, what he sets out to do is go go over everything before he dies. He is going to rehearse, repeat, remind people of all of these statutes, all of this legislation that God has given to Israel through him. And thus the book of Deuteronomy becomes a collection of second times. It's the second time that things get mentioned. And they're being mentioned, as I said, because Moses is drawing near to the end of his life. Now, you can well imagine that the book then uh, is, is, uh, contains a lot of issues. A lot of things are found in the book of Deuteronomy. It's a, it's in essence a summing up of the books prior to, not, not the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is a book of history, but it's, it's summing up of all the things that God has said to them. Our text, the one that I just read you out of Deuteronomy 8, is just one of the numerous issues that are mentioned for the second and some even for the third and fourth time. And that's why the book is called Deuteronomy. It's a book of second times. The, the text that I just read you out of Deuteronomy 8 mentions one issue that is of supreme importance because it is describing a set of circumstances that can be ruinous to one's soul. Guys, it is describing a set of circumstances that leads to the loss of memory. Did you see it in here? I mean, did you see how often he says, don't forget? He, he, he begins in verse 11, take care lest you forget. He mentions it three or four times. Verse 19, and if you forget. Uh, look at verse 14. Um, then your heart, your heart be lifted up and you forget. Guys, do you know the difference between a heretic and an apostate? (laughs) Who cares? But um, a heretic is someone that has never, ever been in possession of the truth. An apostate is someone who once had the truth, but forgot it. Israel was never... A heretic. But Israel was apostate. And perhaps you've heard that. That is, you've heard Israel called an apostate nation. She's an apostate. Because she forgot. Now, 
What possible set of circumstances could lead a group of people to forget God? And not just any people. I mean, this is, um, this is a group of people who had been extracted from cruel Egyptian bondage by some very horrifying but <laughs> very effective interventions by God. You remember them? There were ten of them. They're, they're mentioned in the book of Exodus. All those plagues. And as a result of those interventions, Israel had been forcibly extracted out of Egyptian bondage and, and set free. Now, what possible set of circumstances could make a people for whom God had done so much forget Him? I don't want you to read it for yourself. Look with me again at verses 12 and 13. Let me read them for you. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied Then, then, what possible circumstances could make a people forget? In a word, (laughs) prosperity, wealth. Silver, gold, good houses, multiplied possessions. Ladies and gentlemen, very few things are as hard on the soul as prosperity. You know anybody like that? Oh, I do. I bet you do too. And what we ought to do, if we know anybody with that kind of prosperity, we need to tell them. We need to tell them that they're in great danger. They're in a danger... Their circumstances are such that they risk a loss of memory. A memory that's been numbed by prosperity. They are in danger of becoming apostate. So we need to plead with them. We need to plead with them like... Like we knew that they were, they were handling explosives in their garage as a hobby. 
We need to take them aside and say, don't you know how dangerous is your situation? You're in danger. You're in danger of forgetting. You see, guys, um, as you find in verse 17, wealth makes you forget who the real author of wealth is. Look, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Wealth makes you forget who the real author is, so much so that we take credit for it. And before you know it, we have for, completely forgotten. We've forgotten that we limp. You know, it is, a, it is an illustration, ladies and gentlemen. It is an illustration of how extensively sin has ravaged us. That we can get used to the limp. In fact, under a certain set of circumstances, we can convince ourselves that we don't even have a limp. He says that in verse 14. Then your heart is lifted up. And that set of circumstances, wealth, prosperity makes us strut instead of limp. It replaces a sense of brokenness with a sense of self-trust. And, and it produces a distance between us and God instead of the intimacy that we most recently enjoyed. Now, Jimmy, tell me, tell me again, what is it that can do all of that to us? Oh, Wealth, prosperity. You know, I, I uh, in my preparation for this, I run, in, I ran into this interesting factoid. That's what I'm calling it. I, I'm not, I'm not sure it has a, a lot of relevance. I think it does, but um, I, I got a little quiz for you. This is the kind of stuff that we just throw into sermons just to keep you awake, if you hadn't already gone to sleep. <clears throat> um, there is one item. Uh, on which the United States spent more than the combined GNP. And you know what the GNP is? Gross national product of 90 nations. Now, gang, in the whole globe, <laughs> the whole thing, there's 130 nations. In the United States, we spent more on one item than the combined gross national product of 90 of those 130 nations. Guess what item that was? I mean, don't do it out loud. I mean, we don't do that in church. Guess what item it was? I love to tell you. Trash bags. You know, I wonder how much we spend, our congregation, I wonder how much we spend on additional storage space. 
You know, it's hard to, it's hard to remember that you got a limp when you're, um, when you've run out of storage space for all your stuff. So guys, what is a sensitive soul to do? What, what, you know, what is, what are we to do in, 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 in the hope of avoiding this kind of memory lapse? And we who, and, and there's so many of you out there, you who really want to chase after the Lord Jesus and honor Him with your life and, and, and avoid this, what are we to do? What is a sensitive soul to do about this? Well, I think you already know. Interestingly enough, most of the things we know we ought to do involve giving. And the reason for that, I think, and, you know, I guess, I guess we're never more like God than when we're giving. But the, the reason that giving is so important to the maintenance of our souls is, number one, it requires faith. Number two, it it drains us at least of a little bit of our concentration on self. And then, number three, it reduces the amount of materialism that we can hoard. Now, anything that can do all of that for us, we ought to revere it. Gang, we can all stop talking about the paucity of our own souls, and we can do something about it if you'd like to. Well, how's that, Jimmy? We can give. And give. And give some more. Winston Churchill once said, once said that, we make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. What do you say, my brother and sister in Christ? Why don't we go out and let's make us a life? What do you say? Gang, um, one of the repeated messages that stands out uh, frequently in the New Testament is a message of legitimate, appropriate stewardship. And, and that word, stewardship, is not a, just some kind of a little piece of religious jargon that we preachers use to disguise our discussions about money. Rather, that is, the word stewardship refers to a biblical perspective on responsibility. And that's what I want you to hear today. I want you to hear about the responsibilities and the dangers of wealth. Folks, in, in many ways, the life of the wealthy is made so much more complicated by the wealth. You're going to need the support and the prayer of God's people as you manage this. Um, Richard Foster uh, many of you know that name. Richard Foster has written a couple books on, on the disciplines of the Christian life. He wrote a book years ago called uh, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. By the way, they've updated the book. It's still available. You can see Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. And he described wealthy Christians this way. This just um, with this 
I just thought the sentence was great. He says, um, rich Christians are, are living close to hell for the sake of heaven. You know, there is a, there is a statement in Proverbs chapter 30, and I think most, oh, many of you know it. Proverbs, uh, verses 8 and 9, uh, check this afternoon, Proverbs 30, but the author uh, of Proverbs says, Lord, there's two things that I, that I want of you. Please give them to me. There's just two things. Number one, don't give me too little. And number two, for heaven's sakes, don't give me too much. Now, I bet you we know how to pray that first half. But do you relate to the second half at all? Is there any kind of interface? Does that, does that ring a bell at all? Why would the author of the Proverbs say, I'm scared to death of too much? And we've never had that even cross our minds. I'm scared to death of having too much. And I don't want too much. Because I know what it can do to my soul. We, I, I know we pray about God meeting our financial needs, but have we ever prayed? Has it ever, we ever thought about it? Oh God, please, not me. Uh-uh, no, please. I don't want that much. Don't do that to me. Okay, guys, so what are we to do? What's a sensitive soul to do? Because I'm telling you, we're a wealthy bunch. You, you may you may quibble over that. I, I, I'm telling you, quibble all you like. But facts are, so what are we going to do? What are we going to do? I've got three suggestions for you, and, and you're not going to particularly like them, I don't know, I don't think, because I'm not, I don't know that they're exactly what you're looking for. But is there an earthquake underneath me that I don't know about? So many of you are sensitive souls. And I think so many of you want to figure out what can we do that, 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 that we can honor God. Because I know that God has blessed us with my family with wealth. Okay, so what am I to do? All right, we're going to start like this, guys. The first thing is that you're going to have to spend some time examining your own heart. Now, guys, um, stay with me. Nobody can do that but you. Gang, the issue is always the heart. It's always the heart. If you want to get a good read about who you are, take a look at your own heart. There's another statement in Proverbs chapter 27 uh, that goes like this. It says, uh, as water reflects the face of man, so the heart reflects the man. Yeah, that's what's going to reflect us, ladies and gentlemen. This, the thing at the center of our being. You know, Jesus is constantly, uh, he says this three or four times in in his three-year ministry. He he would speak to the Pharisees and he says, you people honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Because the Pharisees, their understanding of religion 
was that religion was some kind of outward compliance to a set of rules. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. The, the emphasis in the Christian religion is on the purity of one's heart. I, I found this article um, concerning the FDA. You know what the FDA is. The FDA is the uh, Food and Drug Administration. And the, the Food and Drug Administration is, is charged with the responsibility of, of mentoring, of, of, of um, protecting and monitoring the food supply, the, the things that we consume. And in that article, it included the standards of purity for several of the things that we eat. There was a long list, but I, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna mention four of them. Apple butter. I like apple butter. You don't need to eat much, but I like apple butter. And, and, um, the, 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 the FDA standards for apple butter are these. If the mold count is 12% or more, if it averages four rodent hairs per hundred grams or more, if it averages five or more whole insects, not counting mites, aphids, or scale insects per hundred grams, the FDA is going to pull it off the shelf. <laughs> Otherwise, it goes right on your English muffin. <laughs> um, but we don't need much of that. But how about... Coffee beans. Coffee beans. You devotees of Starbucks, you thought your only worry was caffeine? Mm. Better close your ears. Coffee beans will get withdrawn from the market if an average of 10% or more are insect infected or if there is one live insect in each of two or more immediate containers. That means that when you're shopping at Schnooks and you come to the coffee aisle and there's two containers up there and they both have insects, oh, they're going to pull them. But if only one has an insect, uh, well, I, I, let's just hope you don't get that one. And then uh, mushrooms. Love mushrooms. I bought three packages of mushrooms Thursday. Mushrooms... I don't know that I'll eat a mushroom again. <laughs> um, mushrooms can't be sold if there is an average of 20 or more maggots of any size per 15 grams of dried mushrooms. Here's my last one. Hot dogs. <laughs> you don't even want to know. <laughs> Just forget it. Just eat your blasted hot dog. <laughs> Guys, our problem is not maggots. It's not insects or aphids. Our problem is a divided heart. We have a life that's marked by ambivalence and we're pushed and pulled by so many false gods. One of my heroes is a 14th century French mystic. His name is Fenelon. And boy, if you can, it's in our bookstore. If you can go get a hold of that book, it's a little bitty thing. You can read it in an hour. I, it's wonderful. And, and Fenelon, he says a lot of wonderful things, but he says this that struck me while I was preparing this. He says, woe to those timid souls who are divided between God and their world. 
You know what? I think that, de- that describes just about all of us, including me. And you know what he says to us? Woe. Woe to those timid souls whose hearts are divided between God and their world. You know, guys, our divided hearts, according to Finland, have placed us in a state of woe. You know, we keep jobs that we don't like because we like the money's good. We, um, doesn't matter how much money we get. It's never enough, it doesn't seem, to buy us what will ultimately satisfy us. We can buy a house, but we can't buy a home. We can buy influence, but we can't buy friends. We can buy insurance, but we can't buy security. We can buy a lot of things, ladies and gentlemen, but nothing do we seem to cherish for very long. There's this wonderful story. It's found in Luke 12. You can check it this afternoon. But Jesus is moving through a town with a crowd around him, which he pretty much always did. But he's moving through a town and somebody in the crowd yells out at Jesus and says, Hey, Jesus, could you help me get more of my family inheritance? And Jesus refuses to get involved because he knows that's a lose-lose. He's not about to weigh into that thing. But as a result of that questioner, he tells a parable. It's in Luke 12. You can take a look at it. But uh, he tells a parable about a man who had been blessed by God with all these abundant crops. And so he doesn't know what to do with all his crops. And so he decides, okay, uh, here's the solution to my problem. I am going to build bigger barns, more barns, bigger barns. I'm going to build lots of barns. And so he builds lots of barns and he stuffs all of his crops in his barn. And, and once he's got it all stuffed in there, he, uh, the parable says, he uh, says to himself, he says, okay, now, so you've got ample goods for many years. So take your rest. And the, and the parable goes on to say, God said, you fool. This very night, your life is being demanded of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? You know that Don Henley song that says, you don't see any hearses with luggage racks? Gang, we can waste a lot of time building barns barn building is a is a quantitative approach to life that measures how successful we are by how much we have collected and stored up um, we don't all collect the same things um, it depends on the currency that you value you know a lot of people like money i guess most of us do uh, but other people kind of major in relationships, and uh, others care more about achievements. But you know what? No matter what your commodity seems to be, you don't ever seem to have enough of it, do you? And you never end up ever really sensing that you're successful. And Jesus says in that parable, Beware, because one's life does not consist of the abundance of possessions. We'll try telling that to the 21st century West. Guys, 
If you're sitting out there in those pews wondering, well, is it 10% of net or 10% of gross? Then you're asking all the wrong questions. Guys, um, the point is not about satisfying some standard so that we can get, get myself off the hook. You want to ask a question, ask this one. How about asking, uh, not how much do I give, but how much do I get to keep? <laughs> but guys, we, I, I'm, saying, I'm saying all this to tell you that we've got to begin with an examination of our own hearts. So that you've got to open up that private vault of your own heart. And this may be painful. And let me suggest some questions you might want to ponder over between you and the Lord. I just got a few here. How about this? Is my giving proportionate to my income? Or, um, why don't I give it all? Why? Or why do I give so little? Why? Am I motivated by guilt or is there any speck of joy in my giving? Why, why do I refuse to sacrifice for spiritual things? Um, if someone else knew the level of my giving to God's work, what would I feel about that? If my level of giving was known, why do I keep on buying stuff? Have I ever prayed about giving? Or do I throw in a buck or two when my level of guilt drives me to do something just to keep it manageable? Guys, remember, we have a remarkable capacity for self-deception. But Thomas Jefferson said, when the heart is right, the feet are swift. It's always like that, guys. It's always like that. When the heart is right, the feet are swift. Now, guys, listen to me. If this plea that I'm making right now, if this just blows right over you, you may have already succumbed. You are a spiritual amnesiac. Because wealth has made you forget. Here's the second thing. One of the suggestions that the Bible seems to make quite often is that you and I need to spend some time reflecting on God's goodness to us. Hasn't he been good to us? Better than we deserve. Good health, happy family, sufficient food and clothing and shelter, close friends, not to mention the new lease on life that I have now that I'm a Christian and that I have been forgiven of my sin. You know, guys, if you are convinced that somehow God has shortchanged you, you will inevitably turn inward, in on yourself. And that's where materialism becomes such a temptation. And the only antidote that I know of to that is giving. Because it is the exact opposite of greed. That is, giving is the exact opposite of greed. Giving disarms the spirit of mammon. We need to give a whole lot more than Jesus needs to get it.
Oh, yeah, Jimmy, I hear you preachers saying that all the time. I don't believe it when I heard it years ago, and I don't believe it from you. We need to give more than Jesus needs to get. Well, let me prove it to you. In the three-year ministry of Jesus Christ, Jesus entrusted the treasury box to a thief. His name was Judas. And Judas, Judas stole from that treasury box the whole three years that he, Jesus is, of Jesus' ministry. And guess what? Jesus never ran out. And he had somebody robbing from him. You know what? Jesus still has people robbing from him. Guys, it's always the fullest hearts that delight in giving. And your heart just may be empty. And the one way to discover that is by examining your habits of giving. So go bathe in God's great goodness towards you. And in our so doing, we get to taste all over again those things that we learned in Sunday school and brought into our adulthood and haven't thought about for, the, for 30 seconds in the last six months. Go reflect on God, great, God's great goodness to us. See what happens. Here's my third thing, and I'm, I'm done. Start now. Don't wait till next week. Start now. Start now with the examination. Start now with the uh, reflecting on God's goodness. And start now with the giving. Start now. Start right now. You know, some of you were hoping that I'd give you the rules. <laughs> oh, I guess there are some rules. But what I've given you is a challenge to go get with God Wrestle with him. Gang, this is not about a church budget. It's about individual believers responding to God. It's about a group of redeemed people in recognition of how good and faithful God has been to them over the years. And responding creatively to that. Don't miss this chance to do that. Our Father, I do ask that you would allow us and enable us to uh, ask the hard questions that are of our own souls, that you will enable us, O oh God, to uh, peer into our real motives and find out indeed what's going on in our souls and use this little instrument to... Um, to allow us to get real with you. Uh, our great need, O oh God, is a restored intimacy with you. And then the feet get real swift. Father, uh, forgive us. Forgive us that we have, that we have dishonored you. And we... Um, 
We want to change that right now. So, Father, um, so work in the lives and hearts of your people that never again will we ever be close to a case of spiritual amnesia. Do that, O oh God, before our hearts grow cold. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name.